Joshua chapter 8. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise, go up to Ai. See how I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock shall you take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So Joshua and all the fighting men rose to go up to Ai, and Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor, sent them out by night, and he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and the people that who are with me will approach the city, and when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city, for they will say they are fleeing from us just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to all the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them out, and they went to the place of ambush that lay between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night among the people. Joshua arose early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people to Ai. And all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai, with a ravine between them and Ai. He took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai, the west of the city. So they stationed the forces, the main encampment that was north of the city, and its rear guard, guard west of the city. But Joshua spent that night in the valley. And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together there to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city, and the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place. And as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. They hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven. They had no power to flee this way or that way. The people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. When Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. The others came out from the city against them, so they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And Israel struck struck them down until there was none left that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last and fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as their plunder, according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great day, that day a great heap of stones which stands there to this day. 
At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones, upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it a burnt offering to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, and the women and little ones, and the sojourners who lived among them. There's nothing quite like being able to take something that's old and in disrepair and kind of breathe new life into that and kind of restore it to its former glory. Last year, uh, after the previous tenants moved out of the parsonage, it was in disrepair. And the sad part about it was it was a beautiful house in its day. It had, you know, beautiful woodwork and... uh, I can only imagine what it looked like when it was first created. You know, and over the course of time, with a lot of different help from some of you here, we were able to kind of breathe life into that and bring it back to its former purpose. There's a huge interest today in repurposing things and do-it-yourself projects. And people will take all manner of things and repurpose them in unique and creative ways and breathe life into something that most people would consider to be garbage. And I found some really creative ways that people had done that. For example, if you have just a broomstick and a few two-liter bottles, you can make it into a broom. You just follow those steps there, and you can make it into a broom. Why you'd want to do that, I'm not really sure, but you can do that. If you have an old bathtub that you're not using anymore, you can cut off the front of it and make it into a couch. Those uh, little, you know, those little CD cases that you get when you buy CDs, you can put a bagel in there and bring that for lunch. You can take and save all the tabs off of the pop cans and make it into a little bag. Make it just kind of like a chain mail. This is one of my favorites. If you have an old box TV, you can cut out the inside and make it into an aquarium. A while back, a gentleman who used to attend here, uh, made, Curtis, made, uh, he took the piano that was up in the balcony and he cut out all the insides of it and he repainted it and put a new uh, keyboard inside of it, a place for a keyboard, and kind of repurposed that. And along the line, those lines, this is my absolute favorite. Uh, This is a fountain that was made out of an 1885 baby grand piano that had been destroyed by termites. And this guy took uh, resin and put it over the keys so the keys wouldn't rot out. And then he put PVC pipes inside and then he put a pond filter in. And I think they said it flows 2,000 gallons an hour through that piano. But it not only happens for kind of do-it-yourself projects, but... In our culture, it's kind of taken on uh, life in social organizations. One gentleman by the name of uh, Gregory Clone 
he combs through different garbage dumps and he takes all those items out of garbage dumps and he makes homes for people who are homeless. And I think we have a picture of that there. And each home is a little bit different depending on what items he finds, but he takes all the items and he makes homes for the homeless. Uh, Starbucks has started creating an, some stores that are made out of recycled materials. Uh, this one here, I believe, is, was the first one that was created in Seattle, and they made it out of four recycled shipping containers. And they've done other things like that where they take just different uh, snow fences and stuff, and they've made these stores out of recycled materials. And the thing that's nice about them for the company is that they can construct them off-site, and they're about 450 square feet. And then they can go and they drop them in a location, and then they have walk-up service and the drive-through with these recycled materials. Uh, Starbucks Global Store Design Senior Manager reportedly said this. He said, shipping containers source our coffees and teas from around the world, but many end up in scrapyards once they reach their average 20-year lifespan. One inspired way to help keep these items out of the waste stream is to reuse old shipping containers. Anyone who has ever played with blocks can relate to the assembly method for those 450 to 500 square foot drive-through walk-up stores that are made from end-of-life shipping containers. In the prototype, which you're seeing there, one small 20-foot container holds garbage, recycling, and storage. But other than that, the whole store is contained within the shells of four containers that have been reclaimed, refurnished, renewed, and revived. There's something special about renewing things that are garbage, bringing life back to them. And if you were to do that, if you wanted to do that with a particular item, you might go on YouTube or look up an article, and they would tell you different steps that you take to repurpose that item. And I think we can look at this passage today in Joshua chapter 8 and kind of find some steps for repurposing our lives or renewing our relationship with God. That we can have some steps to take with us when we're wondering, what do I do when I've messed up? What do I do when I've been walking far from God? How can I be restored in my relationship with God? How can I be repurposed for His glory? I think this passage can teach us four things, four steps, so to speak, in how we repurpose or renew our relationship with God. The first thing is that we need to remove. Just like Israel had to remove the sin from among them, we need to remove known sin from our lives. And this is the most straightforward of the steps. We just need to remove and, as the scriptures say, flee from sin. The scriptures give us a number of uh, instances in the New Testament where we're told to flee from sin, to run the other direction from sin. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee from sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 10.14 says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. 1 Timothy 6.11 says, but as for you, O man of God, flee from these things. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, so flee youthful passions. See, if we want to be close to somebody, it means that we need to kind of avoid the things that they dislike, that they hate. Imagine a situation where somebody comes up to you and tells you they want to get married. This guy comes up and says, I, I want to get married, but the thing is, I, I really want to retain my own residence, 
and I still want to date people here and there. And I don't really want to have a kind of a combined calendar. I want to kind of do my thing. And, you know, if that works with my spouse, that's great. If not, you know, I'm just going to do what I'm going to do. You know, you might look at that person and say, so are you sure you really want to get married? Are you sure you want to make that commitment? Because it seems like you want to maybe have some benefits of being married, but still be single as well. And I think in a similar way, sometimes we want the benefits of a relationship with God, but we're not willing to do the things that are necessary to get close to Him. Any relationship requires us to say yes to some things, but also no to some things. So we need to ask ourselves, are we really willing to take the steps, the difficult steps sometimes, to get close to God? Because sometimes when we're, maybe we feel guilty or we're experiencing some consequences for our sin, maybe we feel like we want to change, but it's not just we want to change, we just want our circumstances to get better. We want to feel less guilty. We want to feel less condemned. And so maybe we begrudgingly put our sin aside for a time just in hopes that maybe God would look on us with favor. But if we're going to be renewed by God, we need to make a clean break with sin. For those things in our life that we know are sin that we keep doing, we need to tell God, God, I need you to take this from me. I don't want this in my life. And we need to have that willingness to turn from our sins. The scriptures call it repentance. And to ask him to come in and change us. We can't do it on our own. But he can come in and change us. And we have to have that willingness to get close to him and say no to the things that hurt his heart. Bruce Wilkinson defined repentance this way. Repentance means that you change your mind so deeply that it changes you. You change your mind so deeply that it changes you. That we change our orientations towards sin so deeply that we don't want it anymore. That we flee, that we run away from that. So that's the first step of being repurposed or renewed by God. We remove known sin from our life. The second step is that we need to believe. Remember Joshua's response to the first defeat at Ai. We looked at how uh, they sent some people there. The spies came uh, to the city of Ai and they said, we only need a few thousand troops, and they'll, those few thousand tr- troops will be able to defeat the forces at I. Just send a few of them, and then they were defeated. And remember Joshua's response. He was kind of, seemed like he was going through a crisis of faith. He asked God, so why did you even bring me here? Why did you bring us over the Jordan if we were just going to be defeated? Now that Joshua has removed the sin from among the people... God speaks to Joshua a word of comfort. Listen to what he says to Joshua. Do not fear. Do not be dismayed. This is in verse 1. Take all the fighting men with you and rise, go up to Ai. See, I have given it into your hand, the king of Ai, and his people, his city, and his land. And I wonder if Joshua had trouble believing this. Now we don't, we, there's some things in scripture that We don't know exactly what he was thinking that we might like to know. But we can only wonder if he had trouble believing this. Remember back in Joshua chapter 1, it certainly seems like he had a a problem believing and trusting in God. And it seemed like he had a problem with fear. 
Because remember the repeated refrain in Joshua chapter 1? Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Now, the, you know, the reason I think that maybe he had a struggle with that is, you know, if you have, have a child and you, you tell your child, don't do this, don't do this thing. If the child listens right away, you probably don't need to say it again. But if, you, if the child doesn't listen, you might have to say it over and over and over again. And I think that's what happens in Joshua chapter 1. God says it over and over and over again. Be strong and be courageous. And it seems like Joshua believes that. But now he's experienced a defeat. Now he wonders why God has allowed him to lose the battle. And I wonder if in the back of his mind as he's going up to lead the forces against uh, the city of Ai, I wonder if he's thinking, is God really going to come through? Does God really have our best interests in mind? Has God really forgiven us and renewed us? I think the same thing happens with us in our relationship with God sometimes. When we're walking apart from God and maybe we've done things that we know we shouldn't have done, and then we turn back to Him and we wonder, will God really forgive me? Will God really renew me? Can God really repurpose me after all the mistakes and all the brokenness that I've seen in my life? Can God really use me for His glory? And if we're going to be repurposed by God, we need to believe that He can. Because we serve a God of grace, a God of the first and second and third and fourth chance that can renew and repair any circumstance in our life. Psalm 103 says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. When we turn to him, he offers us forgiveness. He offers us a renewed and repurposed life. There's a guy by the name of Wilfredo Garza who lived in Mexico. And each day for 35 years, or nearly every day, he would swim across the Rio Grande and he would try to find work in the United States. And each day, each year, he was always looking behind his back to see if the immigration uh, officials would catch him. And they caught him a number of times, but he kept coming back, sometimes finding work, sometimes not finding work. But he did it to support himself. The cycle would have probably continued forever, but one day he worked up the courage to walk into the office of an immigration lawyer. And to his surprise, he learned that his father was born in the United States, in Texas, and worked in the United States. Little did he know that he himself was an American citizen. In fact, he had the paperwork, his father's birth certificate, his birth certificate, and the working papers to prove that. And yet every day for 35 years, he lived in guilt and shame always looking behind his back, never knowing whether he was going to get caught. Ladies and gentlemen, as believers, we are sons and daughters of the King. 
We have a document that's signed not with a signature, but a signature that's written with blood. The Jesus' blood with his sacrifice for us. He's paid the penalty for our sins on the cross once and for all. And we need to accept his forgiveness and believe that he does have good things in store for us. That when we turn to him, he will forgive us. He will renew us. And he will repurpose us for his glory. So we need to remove, we need to believe. The third thing is that we need to follow. We need to follow God's strategy rather than our own strategy. Recall again, the attack on I the first time. Spies said, we don't need to bother all the troops. Just send a few thousand. They're defeated. But this strategy that God gives them is different. They're to set up an ambush to send a bunch of troops and to draw those the enemy troops out of the city of Ai. And then the, after the enemy troops go out of the city of Ai, the, uh, they're going to ambush and destroy the city behind them. And the result is that they win the victory. But what's interesting in the scriptures, or I find it interesting, is God brings the victory in very different ways. And there's not always a rhyme or reason why he does so. Recall back to the Exodus, when God brought the people of Israel out of Egypt. How did he defeat the the enemy forces? He parted the Red Sea, and they went across the Red Sea, and the waters closed in on them. Then the next battles that they fought were against Sihon and Og when they were in the wilderness. They defeated them by kind of traditional warfare. Then we get to Jericho, and all the people are inside of the city of Jericho. And they march around the city, and then the walls come tumbling down. And here, in the the battle of Ai, we see that there's an ambush, that they just set up an ambush. And what this tells us is that sometimes God works through miracles, and sometimes he works through ordinary means. Sometimes he does things that only, we, that only he could do, and we must trust that he will do a miracle in our lives. But other times, he will work through ordinary, everyday things. See, to be renewed or repurposed by God, it doesn't necessarily mean we have to change the entire trajectory of our lives doesn't mean that we have to quit our jobs and become a missionary or open a soup kitchen or become a pastor. But he renews us and works through us in the ordinary things in life. See, we need to follow God's strategy for life if we're going to be repurposed by him. Because God's ways are always higher than our ways. Even though sometimes it seems like human wisdom makes a lot more sense than God's wisdom. It seemed to the people of Israel that they didn't need to bother all the troops. Just send up a few thousand. These people at I, they, you know, they don't have anything going for them. We can just wipe them out in just a second. But God's strategy brought the victory. And the same thing is true in our lives. There's multiple areas of our lives where our earthly wisdom maybe conflicts with God's wisdom. From a human perspective, maybe it makes more sense to keep everything that we have rather than to give to others. From a human perspective, maybe it makes more sense to have unrestrained sexuality where there's no commitment, we're free to do whatever satisfies us. For, from a human perspective, maybe it makes more sense if somebody wrongs us to make them pay for that rather than to forgive them. 
When things don't go well in our lives, maybe it makes more sense from a human perspective to complain and grumble and be bitter than to trust God. Yet despite these things, for those of us who have walked with God for any length of time, we know that the ways of God are more satisfying than the ways of man. God's wisdom is higher than our wisdom. And if we're going to be renewed by God, we need to realize our strategies will never be enough. Our strategies will always end in destruction. And we need to have a humility to recognize that God's ways are better than our ways. Proverbs 11.2 says, Pride leads to disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. We need to be humble enough to recognize that we don't have all the answers, but God does. And we follow His strategy for life, even in the ordinary things, and find satisfaction in doing God's will. So, to be renewed or repurposed by God, we remove sin from our life. We believe that God has good things in store for us. We follow his strategy. And the fourth thing is that we need to revisit. As this chapter comes to a close, we see that Joshua builds an altar. They offer sacrifices. The people are dispersed into different categories to symbolize the blessings and the curses of the law. Joshua writes the uh, book of the law on new stones. And then look at what he says. At the end, it says, There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel. He read all of the covenant. And in, in short, what they're doing is they're renewing the covenant that they had made with God. The covenant in the Old Testament with the people of Israel was the promise that God would be their God. And there was a promise that God would give them victory when they were faithful to Him. But if they weren't faithful to them, to him, he, they would experience the curses of the covenant. In the New Testament, we see that we as believers enter into a covenant, a covenant with Jesus. A covenant that's by his blood. That We remember when we take communion together. It's a covenant that's based not on our own works and our own efforts, but on the work of Christ. That we don't need to experience the curse of the covenant even though we fail because Christ experienced the curse for us. And all we need to do is put our faith and our trust in Him. And by our union with Him, we can be saved and experience a life with God in heaven. And so we're not judged by our works, or we're not condemned by our works, I should say, because of the work of Christ. The gospel is something, and when I'm saying the gospel, I'm talking about what Christ did for us on the cross and what that means for us in the cross and resurrection. That's something that we need to return to daily. It's something that we need to be reminded of. We need to be reminded of who we are. We need to be reminded of the fact that we're broken, that we're in need of repair. But also we need to be reminded of God's love, that he loved us so much that he went to the cross for us. Ray Ortland once said, we either proudly believe we're too good to be judged or we proudly believe we're too bad to be saved. So the gospel is a continual surprise and we need to hear it again and again. We either believe we're too good to be judged or we believe we're too bad to be saved. Those are the two extremes we go to. And so we need to be reminded each day 
of the gospel and Christ's love for us. Well, uh, sometime about a year after I started dating Stephanie, I proposed and uh, you know gave her a traditional kind of wedding ring or engagement ring. But some things happened after that that kind of associate, were associated with some bad memories with that ring. I won't go into the whole story, but what uh, in short happened was I proposed on this particular day, and then the next day I brought the ring to the jewelers to have it resized. And I believe it was that night he committed suicide. And it was a whole ordeal where, you know, he the ring was at the jewelers, and it it just kind of brought back memories every time we would see that of what had happened to this, this guy. And so this past uh, October, I decided, or well, actually started planning it beforehand, way beforehand. We had uh, sold our house, and I decided I was going to use some of the proceeds of that house to buy a new engagement ring for Stephanie. And so I've been planning it for quite some time, and then... Uh, the day that I proposed originally, October 3rd, was the day I you know, went to the specific location that I proposed and kind of reproposed to her again. And so, you know, she had this ring, and then after that, as we were driving in the car or sitting on the couch, I would notice that sometimes she would just kind of be looking down at that ring, glancing at that ring. Now, I didn't haven't talked to her fully about what she was thinking when she was doing that, but I imagine a few things were going through her mind. The first thing I know that she was thinking was, wow, that's beautiful. And she looked at it glistening in the sun. I wonder also if she thought to herself, wow, I didn't think I would have a ring like that. I mean, I had already received an engagement ring. I didn't know if I'd ever receive a ring like this. And I wonder if also she was thinking, wow, he must love me a lot. That he would be, he'd go through all these steps to buy this ring and surprise me in this way. And I think that we should think the same way about the gospel. As we see what Christ has done for us on the cross, and we see the power that he displayed in the resurrection, it's like that ring glistening. Think to ourselves, wow, how beautiful. Wow, God did that for me. I never thought that anyone would do that for me. Wow, God must love me a lot that he would send his son to the cross to experience the most excruciating pain imaginable so that I could be forgiven. And so we look to the gospel like she was looking at that ring. Because the gospel is the radiance of the glory of God. It glistens the glory of God. It shows us God's heart, that God is both a God of love and a God of justice. And as we do that, as we revisit the gospel, it renews and it transforms us and it gives us power to live it. And it gives us the assurance that yes, we're broken, but yes, we can be forgiven and yes, we can be made new. So we remove, we believe, we follow we revisit. Erwin McManus tells a story in uh, his book, um, Unstoppable Force, about how he was a pastor in South Dallas, and 
he served in a small congregation, but it was a growing congregation. And after some time, they decided that they wanted to get a new church building, that they need the church building for growth. Uh, the problem was they were very poor. Many of them were on welfare. But they put together what little money they had, and an uh, association of churches gave them money to buy this particular parcel of land that was in downtown Dallas. And this piece of land was kind of too good to be true because the land it, it was very scarce um, or very expensive uh, in that location. But they were able to purchase it. And... Then they started doing some survey work and doing, get, working on getting permits, and they found that this location was a former garbage dump. And the garbage went very deep. Listen to what McManus says. We had bought an acre of garbage. Several core samples were taken. From what I understood, they went at least 25 feet deep and found nothing but trash. All I could do was ask our congregation to pray with me and believed that God was with us, and that he would even use the worst of human mistakes to perform the greatest of miracles. After months of prayer, a woman from the congregation told McManus that since they had asked God to turn the land into something useful, surely it had been taken care of. Feeling God's confirmation of her words, McManus asked for more core samples to be taken. This time the researchers found soil. McManus writes this, How did this happen? Was it because the core sample was in a different part of the land? Or could it be that God actually performed a miracle, changed the landfill to good land? What I do know is that the same realtor who sold the property to me came back and offered me three times the amount he had sold it for once he heard the clearance to build had actually come through. What I do know is that the previous owners could not build on the properties, but we could. What I do know is that we were told the property was worthless and unusable. What I cannot tell you is what happened beneath the ground at 2815 South Irvey Street. All I can tell you is what I know, and that is that God took my failure and performed a miracle. He says, today Cornerstone worships on that acre of land in a sanctuary built by our own hands. The good news is God not only does that to fields, but he does that in, to lives. He takes the garbage out of our lives. And he repurposes us, renews us, and uses us for his glory. So we remove, remove our sin, known sin in our lives. We believe in his forgiveness and his grace. We follow his ways rather than our own ways. And we revisit the gospel daily, being reminded of his love for us and the grace he's offered us on the cross. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you're a God of grace, that you are a God who renews and repurposes us for your glory. We thank you that no matter who we are or what we've done, that we can come to you and find grace, find forgiveness, and find hope, Lord. God, I pray for anybody here who maybe is broken and they feel like they've messed up too many times. There's been too many resolutions, too many times they've tried to get better, and maybe they feel like you've given up on them. God, I pray that they would believe the gospel today. That they would believe that there's hope. Believe that they can turn to you and find forgiveness and grace and renewal. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you 
that you're a God that's abounding in mercy and steadfast love. We look forward to all that you're going to do. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.